So in case you wonder, this is Bill Parker. He is one of our elders, and he's going to pray for me before the message this morning. So God, what a privilege to lift up Paul before he preaches today. We ask, God, that you would bless him in a special way. A bit of a tough bit of scripture to explain to us, God, but I pray that you would use the wisdom that you've given this man to impart it to us that we might understand better. I pray that you'll bless him today, give him courage, give him conviction that he needs to do what he needs to do today, to tell us what we need to hear. And I pray that you'll bless him as he does it, God. Bless his family, uh, bless his health, bless his ministries, bless his music, God. We give him to you and ask a special blessing on him today. In Jesus' name, amen. Bill is on cloud nine. His grandchildren are here visiting him today, so he's loving that. Um, if you think about it, keep uh, Jared Clark, who usually comes and does our announcements, keep him in your prayers. His, he's not here with us this morning because his grandfather passed away, and so he is on his way to um, Winston-Salem. He's probably there now, Winston-Salem, to be with his family and his grandmother. So he sends his love, and um, that's where he is today. So we're getting towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 7, and now we're in Matthew 7, 7 through 14. So Matthew 7, 7 through 14. Keep on asking, and it will be given what you ask for. Keep on looking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And the door is open to everyone who knocks. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. If you sinful people, actually the word is really evil, actually evil, you sinful evil people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Do for others what you would like them to do for you. This is a summary of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and his gate is wide for many who choose the easy way. But the gateway to life is small and the road is narrow and only a few ever find it. In case you're wondering today whether you should have gone to traditional service, the answer is maybe, because they started out the sermon time with the song Highway to Hell by ACDC. I am not kidding you. I I want to be in there just to see Bob be like, hey, I don't know if he's going to try to sing it or what, I don't know, but I'm dying to know what it's like. Anyway, Bob, of course, is so holy. He's like, I've never heard that song before. And I'm like, Bob, it's on my iPod in four different places right now. Anyway, so that's what's going on in traditional service. However, I want to tell you something. Those of you, who else an oldest child in here? Oldest child? Who else feels like you were the one that broke your parents in? Kind of like they, you, you broke your parents in. You know, they were kind of like going along great as husband and wife, and then you came along. That's how I feel. I kind of broke my parents in. I, I ruined it for my younger brother. And it's interesting when, you have, when you're the first and you're like me, and your parents were kind of coming out of the hippie age. They had a lot of hippie friends. And so when your birthday came along, they would just send you cards with nothing in them, but it just said, best birthday wishes to you. And you would like shake the card and be like, birthday wishes ain't buying me no toys, people. Like, you know. But also, when you're the oldest, you destroy things for your brother or your sister because when you mess up, they get the mess up too. Like, for instance... If you have just messed up curfew and your parents are extremely irate, your brother cannot then come ask your parents if he can watch Thundercats on TV at that moment, right? I, I like just scene. Here we go. Scene. I'm sorry that I came in late. Bam. Go to your room. 
Then Mark, and then there's my brother standing there like, what do you want? Nothing. I'm going to my room. You know, <laughs> you, you, when you're the oldest one and you're like me, 85% of my parents' conversations when I was in high school were negative. Negative. It was just negative. I can't even tell you the things that we talked about that were just negative. And my poor brother, he'd be left with the bag and he'd want to like go outside or something like that. And they were just going to turn and be like, and what do you want? And he'd be like, nothing. I'm just, oh, I'm never just. But is that how we think of God? Like we better catch God if we were going to ask him, we better catch him in a good moment. We better catch God. If we want to ask God something, we better catch him on a day that we haven't sinned and we know and we've been checking off and we're like, okay, I can ask for this God today because I, I'm, I'm pretty good. Or, we're, you know, uh, this is just right after Christmas. So God's been really busy. I'd probably like give him like, you know, he's been at every church in the world just like everyone else. You know, I probably should just wait or, you know, uh, I just don't, I, I can't ask for this from God right now. And we kind of superimpose maybe in our dealings with people. It's a little bit like being the next person in line after Elaine confronted the soup Nazi. And so this, this verse, these this seem to be like three totally different things when we look at it on, on first. We go, man, we've just been talking about judging and not being judging overly critical. So then all of a sudden we're going to talk about prayer and we're going to talk about the golden rule and we're going to talk about the singular uniqueness of Christ for, thank, for, for salvation. These seem to be, and so I ask you the question, are they unrelated? Are they just kind of, well, here's a random topic and here's a random topic and here's a random topic. Or is Christ the greatest preacher ever? And these are all woven in as part of an integral part of us understanding what he's trying to teach people who want to be disciples at the Sermon on the Mount. This is actually, so I'm going to to give you the answer. This is a continuation of the major theme, the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount is this. I'm going to trust only in God and then govern myself according to that trust. That's way number one. Or is it way number two? I'm going to trust in myself and hope that I can govern God by my actions. Well, those are really the two places, and I'm going to spell this out for you, but is it, I'm going to trust in God and govern, my, govern myself accordingly, trust in God first, govern myself accordingly that, or am I going to trust in myself and hopefully God will govern himself according to me? Because this is really the two places, and you're going to see this as a theme in there. So let's jump right into the text. So 7-7, seven, seven, Matthew 7-7, seven, seven, it's an easy one to remember, ask, seek, knock. And that's easy one to remember. Matthew 7, 7, ask, seek, knock. And I love that these verses give you two things that are going to tell you about how you should do it. So Jesus, number one, he gives you three different ways to when you think about prayer. So three, there's three different ways. Everyone who would have been sitting underneath a rabbinical teacher would have understood that knocking at a door was analogous to prayer, that that was an illustration to prayer. But also he does it in the present tense of the verb, which is a continuation. Keep on knocking. Keep on asking, keep on praying, keep on, keep on. They're all metaphors for prayer. They're all in the present tense, and they're all a continual act. And the reason that this is important is that can we all agree that God is a mystery? Yes. Even the text tells us in the scriptures, Exodus, the mysterious things are God and they belong to God. We hear about when is Christ coming back, and Jesus specifically tells Not even the angels know. They look into these things and they want to know. So there are things of God that are mysterious. His will, his ways, they're mysterious. But not the overarching. The overarching will of God for you and me and our lives is for us to be like Jesus Christ. So that we get past that, God's greatest will for us is for us to be like Christ. We also don't know when he does these things. And we're going to talk about this more later on. But he says, what do you know? What do you know about God? 
What you do know is above all that God is good. That's what we know. We know that God is good. So if we know that God is good, then what we do needs to come out of what we know. And what we do is we know God is good, let's keep on knocking. We know God is good, let's keep on asking. We know God is good, let's keep on pursuing him. And so this is also invariably tied to verses one through six as well. So verses one through six just talked about don't be overly critical when you do tune in your life so that you're not giving precious things, the holy things of God to people that aren't gonna care about it. So it's talking about judging and then the next thing talks about praying. So I'm not just totally different but they're right there next to each other is that praying that God would give you himself. And so verse seven, verse eight actually reminds us that the answer that is given to us is that God doesn't hide from us. God does not hide from us, God doesn't hide, but the best gift that God can give us here in verse eight is the best gift God can give us is not something, but it's someone, and it is himself. The best thing that God can give us when we ask for it in prayer is not something, it is someone, and that is himself. And if we look at James 1, 5, what does James say? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God for it. And we get to 1 Kings 3, 5, Solomon could have asked for anything in the world, and Solomon asked for what? Wisdom. And God said, I would have been utterly disappointed if you had asked for all those other things, but because you didn't ask for all those other things, I'm gonna get you asked for wisdom, I'm gonna give you wisdom and all those other things. So the other part that we need to have just a little bit of a come to Jesus moment on it is, is there's nowhere in scripture that promises God's people that they will be healthy, wealthy, and full of life for all their lives. That's not in scripture. That's not in scripture. There are certain people that God promises that to, but nowhere in scripture is there this blanket promise that those who follow God will be healthy and wealthy and have their lives full of things. It's not there. Actually, what Jesus promises us in in the book of John is, in this life, you will have trouble. That's the promise. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so he's saying, you know, I know that you know that you need things. And so when we refer back to chapter six, he says, again, look at the lilies of the field, look at the sparrows, Look at how they neither sow nor reap, but they're clothed and they're fed. God knows you need those things. Don't worry about them. But the greatest thing that God can give you here in verse 8 is his presence, is himself, is his discernment, is his wisdom. So when we get to verse 9, go through 9, 10, and 11, Jesus is giving us a by way of contrast. So by way of contrast, he's saying, listen, okay, first of all, let's talk about how you evil people treat your children. And those of you, don't call me evil. And I'm going to go, okay, how many of us sin this week? Okay, we're all evil. Okay, okay, I, I get it. We are, we, are, we are absolutely justified and made new, and we are new people, and we're born again in Christ, but we still struggle against our flesh all week long. So we're sinful people. And so he says, you sinful people, how do you treat your children? Because this actually reflects on how you see God. And so I wanna ask you this question about in verses nine, 10, and 11. He's asking you this question. He's, he, he gives you the, the fish or the snake or the loaf of bread or the stone, but then it's all hinting at this bigger picture of, do you think God is stingy? This is, he's asking you this. Do you believe in your heart of hearts that God is stingy? Do you believe that God is, the word is placable? Placable, which is kind of like, depending on his mood, you better catch him in a good mood or you might not get it. God is moody or, or God is somehow, somehow that God is so small that our emotions can have an effect on him and him to be a different way. And so you also want to refer back to chapter 6, 30, 31, 32, 33, where he says, don't be like that. That's how the pagans act. Well, you come right over here to this verse again, and and you want to say, 
the pagan gods, they were the ones who they were worried about was the God having a good day or a bad day that that prayer might be answered or not. These are gods that got jealous about each other. These are the gods that had children and fought over their children. These are the gods that if you didn't do things just exactly right, that they would just refuse to answer your prayer. He says, do you think God is like that? And so I want to ask you this question. In your heart of hearts and in your mind of minds, do you think God is stingy and he's standing up there like this? Or do you think God is so generous that he gave us his one and only son? For the millionth and first time, I'm going to say it again. I love a lot of you, and I would take a bullet for you. I'm not sending Molly or Hannah to take a bullet for any one of you. That's a different kind of love. And so, so at the end of this, we go, is God stingy, or did he give us his son? And so when we get to verse 12, we reflect back on this idea of God loves you better than you love yourself, and God loves you more than you love yourself. And so then, in turn, we get this really actually very universal teaching that is found in a lot of different teachers all across the world. Most teachers, as they teach this golden rule, they teach it in don't do to others what you wouldn't want have done to you. Jesus flips it into the positive, and so he says, do unto others as you would have done unto you, or treat others as you would like to be treated. He's not unique in this that Jesus does it, but what I want to tell you is this. When we as disciples do this, we don't say, this is a principle in my life. We say, this is a governing way of life for me. So the golden rule is not just a principle. It is you will know that someone is a disciple of Christ when this is apparent and evident in their life and how they live. And the other part about it is when you do this, you release God's love in your life. Now, those of you that haven't had a children, haven't had a child yet, you, you won't understand this. But those of you that have had a child yet understand this. When you have a child, it releases love in your life that you didn't know that you had. Now, we have four chambers in our hearts but I'm pretty sure that when you have a child, another chamber appears. Because all of a sudden, you have this more love that you didn't know was in there. Love that would make you go kill someone if they mess with your child. You know, love that would make you cross the desert or cross the ocean either way to provide for them. It releases this love in your life that you didn't have. Well, the golden rule releases Christ's love in your life. You're not just a keeper of God's love. You're a conduit of his love. So when we get to verses 13 through 14, 13 through 14 also seem to be just this departure. They seem to be just this hard right turn away from it. But in reality, these verses hold a two-part significance. For one, they are about the singularity and the uniqueness of the salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. And so if you want to look at two verses, definitely write the second one down. John 14, 6, you already know. So when we talk about this narrow road and this broad road, John 14, 6, Jesus says unequivocally, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then there's this qualifier. No one comes to God the Father apart from me. So, so the unique, specific way of salvation is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what we've got to realize is Jesus is not only saying, I am the way, but he also says, I'm the way to get to the way. I'm the gate. And that is in John 10, 9. And so in John 10, 9, Jesus actually doesn't just say, hey, I am a way. He verbatim says, I am the gate. Now, in the context of that, what he's talking about is the gate to a sheepfold. Now, a sheepfold would have been a series of rocks kind of in the shape of an acute C. Not like a really cute C, but like an acute, acute, like a very all together, there's a C right there. And so there would be, a, there would be rocks, and they'd be piled up about this big, and they'd be big enough for people to take their herd of sheep into them. 
And they would be in that C shape, and the C shape would be the door that was always open. And the shepherd would literally lie down across the entrance right there, his body, to where he becomes the gate. No sheep go out, and no one comes in to try to get them. Do you see how specific that is and how powerful an analogy that is? So Jesus not just came in claiming just to be the way of life. He claims to be the gate to get there. So specific, so specific. But also, the other part of this, and this is the broad way and the narrow way, it's also just really an incredibly conclusive sentence about the entire Sermon on the Mount, about the entire Sermon on the Mount. And what he's saying is, you can either trust Jesus' righteousness and live accordingly, trust God and live accordingly, or trust your own righteousness, trust what you think you can do, and find death. I'm going to say that one more time. You can trust in Christ's righteousness and live. Whose righteousness? One. One. Christ alone. Or trust in your own. And guess what? If you're trusting in your own righteousness, that's every other way in the world. Every other way in the world is the way that leads to destruction because it's trusting in your own righteousness. So Jesus here is preaching to two different sets of people, but they both think that they're disciples. One think that they're going to be discipled by what they can do and by anything that they're going to trust in other than God. Listen, I can have my relationship with God, but my trust is going to be in money. Didn't we just talk about that? Listen, I'm going to trust in God, but when someone smacks me in the face, I'm going to bust them back. Did you hear that again? Or is someone that's going to go, I'm not going to trust in my own righteousness, but I'm going to trust in the one that God has already called righteous. And I'm going to put my stock in with him. And it's not going to be my righteousness. It's going to be his. And so in that way, it's this entire summation of the whole Sermon on the Mount together. But let's first talk about the first part of, this, first part of the scripture and the part about prayer. And so I want to ask you this question. What have you given up hope on and stopped praying for in your life? What have you given up hope on and stopped praying for in your life. I'm gonna tell you what, what one is for me, my music. I'm just being honest with you. Well, not to guilt anybody out, it's just the way it works. When I release a CD, I sell dozens of copies, like two dozen. I give them away like 100 to one on how much I sell. And I even, you know, and when you're doing this, you have this vision, you're like, Lord God, I want to do this for you, and I only want to do it for you, but I want to do it so it supports some ministry, and other people find out about this ministry, and it supports them. And then at the end of the day, you're like, and I did this, and no one cares. And so I would pray about it, and I'd pray like, Lord God, I, I don't want you to use this money to make me famous or use this CD. I want your name to be glorified. I want your church. And you know what? It wasn't until a friend of mine named Todd Bird started asking me repeatedly, how can I be praying for you? How can I be praying for you about this? What about your music? Tell me what you're doing. And so I just very calmly said back to him, what's the point? And he's like, what do you mean, what's the point? And I said to him, listen, I know. You don't have to tell me. I know. If I, did the, if I recorded an album full, full of songs, who is that album for? It's for Jesus. You know, that's great. But I can't hear Jesus clapping for me. I can't hear Jesus going, this is great. I love it. You know, I can't hear that. All I can hear is the church. And he's like, well, are you still praying about it? And I'm like, no. And he didn't go, pray about it. But when I said no, I went, hmm, okay. What do I believe about God? Do I believe that he's stingy? Do I believe that God's like, one more song in drop D, seriously? No, I'm not gonna bless the CD, stop. Sound more like Michael Card. You know, I don't know. 
what do I believe about God? Do I believe that he's stingy? Do I believe that he gets off on being withholding? Do I believe that somehow if I just did it more right that he would answer my prayer? So much so that it causes me to lose hope and quit praying. But it has to do with what I believe about God, not what I do, but what I believe about God. And so in verses seven through 10, Jesus is prodding you with this question, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about the goodness of God? And I wanna tell you the two ways that Jesus helps us. First of all, he personifies God and gives you a name that you can relate to, whether or not you have a good or or negative connotation to it. He doesn't just say God the Father in heaven who is so mighty and so other and he holds the universe in his hand and this just big, great, amazing thing, you're like, oh. He just simply says, your Father. So we're gonna get to the your part second, but he says, Father. There's intimacy, there's care, and you go back to the whole bread and the fish, and what do you believe about God? He's your father, he's your tender father. But then also he gives you even one more, and he doesn't just say the father in heaven, he says this, your father in heaven. Now I don't know the kind of relationship you have with your father, I don't know. And really, in reality, it doesn't matter. Because God the father is the kind of father that you can interrupt any business meeting he's having and going to him. You can. It's true. We could be DEFCON 5 here at church. Somebody wants to have snake handling Thursday, and we're having a whole meeting about it. They brought snakes to the meeting, and some of them are poisonous. And my daughter calls. I'm taking that call. I'm taking it. And I'm sinful. What do you believe about God? He's not just God. He is your father. And so the one-two punch is he doesn't say, listen, I'm going to explain to you the mysteries of God. The one-two punch he tells you is one, keep on. And secondly, because he's your father and because he loves you. But you can already hear the protests coming and building in our hearts, right? There's a but. You're ready to bring the but up already, and you're kind of like, but Jesus, come on now. You and I both know that I prayed, and 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 we got people in the church together, and we prayed, and I gotta put it on the church prayer list, and we prayed, and Pastor Bob prayed, and we know his prayers count for three times what mine count for, false. But we could, but we prayed, and nothing happened. And I'm gonna tell you maybe three places where your heart is. First of all is this. You believe that God is there when you're outside knocking. You believe that he's there, but he actually doesn't really care. He's there. I know when I pray, God hears me, but you know what? I'm not really sure that he cares. I'm not really sure that he cares. Secondly, you think to yourself, it's me. It's me. It's something with me. I know that God listens to these other people, and I know he listens to their prayer, but just not me. Whatever it is in my life, it's just not me. He doesn't listen to me. Or the third, which is the simplistic way, but it's just simply this, that God sees, that God knows, and that God cares, and that God gives me freely of himself, and that God gives me his son, and that his timing is not my timing. And you go, I knew you were gonna say that. It is simplistic, I know, but notice that the why that Jesus gives us about praying says nothing about why or why not God answers prayers. The why that he gives you in terms of why you should pray says nothing about this, and he says nothing about God's mysterious timing. The why that he gives you is twofold, because he's your father 
and because he's good. And that's the why. That's the why when he did. What about the timing of that? Why did God send Jesus when he did? Now I understand the whole fulfilling prophecies and all those amazing things, but why did it happen right then? Why did it happen at that time? And yet we can sit here 2,000 years later and go, thank God that Christ was sent at that exact moment that God understood and knew why. And part of it is, this is why we look to the cross after everything. And we go, we look to the cross, there's no everything. And we go, at that moment, there's no doubt in my mind that I can say God is not good. So when I was dead in my sins and hating Christ and saying crucify him, that was the moment that he sent his son for me. And that timing makes no sense to me. And the timing makes no sense to me when I would be standing there going crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And at that moment was the moment that Christ went to die. Not a moment we would have chosen, not a moment we would have even thought about because we weren't on Christ's team at that point. But if we have to trust that if at that moment it was good, then whatever it is in our life that we have given up on praying for, I wanna say and invite you one more time. Can one more time today, can you go back on your knees and pray about that thing? One more time. Do it again today, and then do it again tomorrow, and then do it again the next day. Why? Not because we understand God's will and everything, but because we know two things, that he loves us and that he's good. But then when we look at this big picture, the big picture, is that you need to understand that Jesus is speaking in this Sermon on the Mount to two sets of people. Again, one set of people is thinking to themselves, if I live this life, I can live my life and gain leverage over other people and God by what I do. Look, you see how I'm living, you see how I'm living holy, you better treat me like a holy person, you better treat me with respect. God, by the way, you see what I'm doing, God. You see what I'm doing? I'm gonna achieve leverage over you by doing what I'm doing so that when I call to you in prayer, you will have to answer me. And by the way, when I come knocking on the door of heaven on the day that I die, you will have to let me in because of what I've done. I'm getting leverage over you by how I live, God. And Jesus is saying, you people are not disciples. That is the broad way. That is the way where you get to choose the way that you please God, but instead the narrow way is you choose me and I am the one that pleases God. So let's look at this whole thing just so I can kind of give you a little bit. If you got your Bible, flip back to the Bible. Flip back, go back two chapters to chapter five. Go back two chapters to chapter five if you got it. Because verses 13 and 14 are a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. So when we get to, we get to chapter five, look at chapter five, verses one through 12. Chapter five, verses one through 12 are all this. All these people in this world that have pain, that are down here, down low, they, they don't want victory, they want peace. They, they, don't want, they don't want to be well known, they want righteousness. They, they hunger for these things. All these people that are last right now, guess what? That's not how it is. They're actually first. And the people that are ch chasing all of these evil things are actually not chasing me. They're chasing the broad way, but those people that are chasing the narrow, the righteousness, the reconciliation, the peace, the beloved are the peacemakers, that narrow way, they're actually the ones that have my heart. You see, it's this whole one of two ways. Verses 17 through 20 in chapter five. He's saying God's law, in verses 17 through 20, God's law is not designed to show you how righteous you are. You can't obey it, you can't keep it. God's law is there to show you that you cannot keep it, that you are sinful and that you need a savior. 
It's not there to put for you. I have come to fulfill. It's not there to put for you so that you can actually do it. It's so that you understand that you need someone who will come and fulfill the law, and that's gonna be me. Belabor this, but keep going with me. Verses 21 through 47. Verses 21 through 47 are, are you gonna take the narrow way and trust that God will care for you and that he will bring justice? Or no one's gonna care for me, I need to look out for number one. If someone busts me in my tooth, I'm gonna bust their tooth back out. Someone dots my eye, I'm gonna dot their eye. If someone is my enemy, I will hate my enemy. And can't you see that that is the broad way? Isn't that the way everyone else works? And the narrow way is what? Now, I'm gonna trust that God is gonna take care of it. I'm gonna do the exact opposite. I'm gonna pray for my enemies. Verses, chapter six, verses one through four. He says this. Do you give God? Do you give? Do you give to God? Do you give to the poor? Do you give in church? Do you give it to get leverage over God? Hey, look what, look what I did. Or do you do those things to get God? God, I, I'm not using my stuff to get glory. I'm using my stuff to get you. Do you see how one is broad and one is narrow? Five, five through 18, exactly the same. Do I pray so that I will trust God or do I pray so that I will get leverage over him? By the many words that I pray, am I getting leverage over God? Listen, you saw how I prayed, God. You better answer it. Or do I do it to get God? It's 19 through 34. Do you trust in God alone or do you trust in what you can try to get and keep? And he even says this. You can't serve God and money. You will love one and hate the other. And then in verses seven, one through six, are you gonna leave the being God up to God or are you gonna be trying to be God? There's a way that's broad that leads to destruction, but there's a way that's narrow that leads to life. And the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is all based on this. And so this extreme narrowness of the gospel is seen in Jesus' statements in John 10 and John 14. But notice that he says, enter through the narrow gate, and then he says, the gate to hell is wide. You know what? A wide gate is actually not a gate at all, is it? Right? If all of a sudden you went up to a house and they took the wall down, would someone say, please enter through this door? You would go, you took the whole wall off the house. I'm just gonna come in inside. This is not even a way. And that's exactly what it is. There's no direction. There's no way. The way to hell is whatever you want it to be. And doesn't that sound eerily like our world today? Why can't I believe what I want to believe? Why can't I do what I want to do? Why can't I choose? Why can't I? Why can't I? Why can't all roads lead to God? Why can't there just be this many? Because the way to hell is broad, and the way to Christ is singular through him alone. And so just to finish with this one thing, the story and then, and then, the, then the point, y'all don't ever go hike the Grand Canyon. Or if you do, hike it when it's really cold. Because the gate and the road that leads to destruction is downhill. And it's easy. And you could roll down it if you really wanted to. You could slide down it. And it feels good. And when you're going downhill into the Grand Canyon, you're like, why do people complain about this? This is awesome. This is good. And you see these people, they're like looking like death on the way back up. And you're like, what's wrong with that person? And as you go down, it's so easy. 
And then you go out onto the plain. At the plain at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, I forget the name of the plain. Somebody will probably email it to me later on. But you get the name of the plain. And if you're like me, and if you think about the sun and you get sunburned, it's like sitting on a frying pan. I have a gallon of water with me. Drank most of it already. And we're walking across this plain. What are we walking to? The river. Like you can see it really well from way up there. Don't know why we need to get gone closer to it. And we begin to notice that. Have you seen like, you know, Wiley Coyote when he's in the middle of the desert? He's immediately kind of like, you know, and then all of a sudden he's even lower down to the ground and his tongue is like <laughs> licking the ground. That's how we felt. And we were like, this was so easy getting down here, but now we're going to die. And it was so easy. And yet the way back up, we didn't, my dad and I were like, we're in the middle of this plane, walking across this plane, and we're like, no, no river is good enough for us to see this. Turn around, started walking back. And the way back, we passed all the people that were like, this is awesome. We're like, you just wait. And we start heading back up this after having now been in the middle of the day with the heat and all this kind of stuff. And we're coming, and it's hard. And we're going against the flow. Nobody else is going back up at this point. And what we're doing is hard, and we're struggling, and we're laboring, but we're doing it because we know that the way up leads to life. There's no other way up. I can't just kind of try to start climbing the side of the canyon. There's one way up, and we go that way. Now, you know what? It feels really better going downhill, but going downhill is not the way that leads to life. And so, again, I want to come back to this one singular point. You can either trust in what you do and hope that you will be justified by God. Or you can put your hope in the one who was already justified by God and live in him. The one who was already accepted by God, the one who's already celebrated by God, the one who's already glorified by God, and his name is Jesus Christ. So Christ would come and he would preach the very end of this text and he would simply say if he was gonna be a good you know, evangelist, which he obviously is, and wrap it up right here and just say, simply say this. If, are, you, are you here this morning trusting in the things that you've done? Or are you trusting in what Christ has done? Because what you've done is in a million different directions. But what Christ has done is singular and for all time and eternal. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I am the gate. You cannot enter into it with, without me. He's not only the way that we go through, but he's the way that we stay in. Two things. What have you given up hope on praying for? Can you pray again today for it? Secondly, is your hope and trust not in what you've done or what you think you can do, but in what Christ Jesus has done once and for all and you simply said, I cannot do it. I put my trust and hope in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you, God, and it's a heavy thing because we live in a world that celebrates every other way but you. And to claim you is to be closed-minded, to be a bigot, to be every other name in the book. And honestly, Lord God, let us welcome that persecution. Lord Jesus, let us welcome it because we would understand that we cannot take it for granted, that following you is going to cost us something, that going against the flow is going to cost us something, that claiming your truth, proclaiming your goodness, claiming your singularity is going to cost us something. And so, Lord God, let us welcome that. Let us embrace it. It is our cross to carry to bring you glory and to bring you honor for what you have done once and for all. So, Lord God, let our lives be a testimony to your goodness, your singular, unique fulfilling of everything, Lord God, that we would trust in you wholly and live our lives to give you glory and honor. We stand and we worship you and we continue because you're a good and awesome God. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen.